Welcome to another episode of Pillar and Ground. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC, and today Dr. Dan McDougall joins us for a Pillar and Ground questions episode where we seek to bring biblical truth to bear on the questions of our day. And Dr. McDougall is a professor at Covenant College in the Biblical and Theological Studies Department. He and his wife, Barb, worship with us and serve with us here at LMPC, which means I've known Dan and Barb coming up on 16 years. You believe that? No. <laughs> and uh, Dr. McDougall is here. He, matter of fact, Dan was uh, in the examining room when I was examined for ordination. And um, so I'm a little more at ease with you right now, Dr. McDougall. <laughs> but... Uh, the question, we received some early questions from a focus group we put together, and we're eventually going to open up these questions to the broader congregation to submit questions, and we'll handle them. But this is the basic heart of the question. Why should I trust a 2,000-year-old book or more like the Bible? Um and so we want to talk about the trustworthiness of the text that our lives are based upon. And so just a real basic opener, is the text of the Bible trustworthy? I would answer yes, but then I want to qualify that just a little bit on what I mean by that. I want our doctrine of Scripture to be based on what Scripture says about itself. Mm. And it claims to be God's Word it claims to be absolutely true. It also claims that the authors who wrote it were inspired by God and that the text itself is inspired by God. But it doesn't claim that every single copy of the text is perfect, mm. that all people from then on will get it perfectly. So sometimes you will have people say, well, practically every copy we have is different from every other copy. And in terms of very, very minor things like spelling, uh, maybe an occasional verse gets moved slightly, uh, that would be a true statement. The problem with it is there is no doctrinal area that's up for grabs anywhere in Scripture. Mm. Uh, these We're talking slight differences, and that's probably because the way documents were copied uh, in the Middle Ages when they copied documents, you'd have one monk stand at the front and read out loud. Well, that meant that your 15 monks who are sitting there copying might put down one letter different, but Jerusalem spelled one way and Jerusalem spelled one letter different is still Jerusalem. <laughs> and so, you know, there's no doctrinal area at all in question in terms of the text. And one further thing on terms of the trustworthiness of the text when you look at the New Testament compared to any other ancient document in the world, mm. it's at least 10 times more copies, usually 100 times more copies than any other ancient document in history. Wow. It is the most attested document in the history of the world. Wow. So the copies can have errors. Yes. But, but what you're saying is we know where they are and we know what they are. Well, by putting copies beside copies beside copies, and we're talking in terms of the total New Testament text, somewhere over 5,000 copies, mm -hmm. putting them beside each other and just reading in context, you can 
almost always pick out where one is off just a little bit. Yeah. Or if some copyist might have, you know, when he's writing it down, skipped a verse, but every other one has that verse kind of idea. Mm-hmm. But again, there's no doctrinal area that is up for grabs. None. In any of those. In areas. any of those. Yeah. And, and, but you, there's two places in the New Testament, John 8, the account of the uh, sinful woman and the longer ending of Mark 16. What are those? I mean, I think sometimes people read their Bible and it's got the parentheses or something right. and they read like, what? There's another ending or this may not be in some Bibles. How do we think about that? Yeah, those are by two the far longest sections that are debated. And what we're talking here is 12 or 13 verses with Mark and eight or nine verses with John. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's it's not very many verses. And what we do have is copies that either have those in there or don't have those in there. And so we're trying to make a judgment on does it go back how far and when. Uh, in terms of the Johannine one, um, that same story is found in a couple copies of Luke's gospel. Hmm. Um, it doesn't exactly fit the context there. Even the wording is slightly different than John tends to use. Uh, the earliest copies of John do not have it. Mm-hmm. And so trying to get to the earliest, it, it could be a true incident. We don't know for sure on that. But it probably is not part of the original text of John's gospel. Okay. In terms of the Mark and ending, we actually have two or three Mark and endings. Um, there's some shorter ones than that longer one that is there. When you examine it, the texts are approximately equal on whether it should be there or not. But when you look at the particular words and the grammar and the way it's, it's, it's uh, phrased, it's quite different from the way the rest of the Gospel of Mark is. Mm. And so mm-hmm. most New Testament scholars who deal with questions of textual criticism, as it's called, um, feel that that is probably a later edition. Now, I should remark just on the content of it, though. When you look at the content at the end of Mark chapter 16, you can find almost every one of those things in one of the other Gospels. <laughs> so again, there's no doctrine at stake yeah. In reference to that textual variant. Yeah, that's good. So the original manuscripts are inerrant. I would say that's what Scripture claims for themselves, is that the original writers who wrote the original manuscripts are inerrant. That's great. Now, so when you get into questions about translations of the Bible, even English translations and what we have, um, are all translations the same? No, they're all different. And Every translation we have has been produced by 100% sinners. All right? So we have no perfect translations. But I, I would say, especially in reference to the English language, we are the most blessed people mm-hmm. in the history of the world that I can take 10 translations off my shelf and get the exact same doctrines from all those translations. Wow. And it may, one verse here or there, slightly different wording, choosing which definition might be the best definition, it's still not going to change our doctrines mm-hmm. and what we believe Scripture teaches. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think, you know, with all the different debates about translation, it's really important to remember how blessed we are. Mm. There's so many people in the history of the world have one or two, even 
major language groups sometimes have three or four. We have dozens and probably a dozen more next week. Yeah. 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 Well, that's good because we, in a previous episode or in one of our Pillar and Ground episodes, we'll talk about in the confession about the imperative that the confession gives to transmitting and translating the text so all people can know the truth of our Lord. And there's some that still don't have any copy of the text, and we are blessed. We are incredibly have blessed. many. So um, I'm a high school student listening to this. I'm a senior in high school. I'm about to go to college, a college not named Covenant. And um, they're going to go after the trustworthiness of the Bible somewhere in my first year or somewhere. I'm an adult living in the world, and I listen to a podcast, and this podcast just really undercut what I thought was the authority of Scripture. What are some of the most common tactics someone could expect, a, a high school senior about to graduate, someone in the secular world or academia? What are some of the most common tactics people will take to try to make Christians unsettled about the trustworthiness of the Bible? Well, I think some of the things I just mentioned about the difference between various texts, that there are some slight differences. And they will say, you know, all of these vary from each other. But that doesn't tell you what they vary on. And so, you know, when I mentioned the spelling thing, that's huge. Um, after you get past that John 8 passage in the end of Mark chapter 16, really everything else that's even questioned is like a verse or less. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, by saying they're all different because of slightly different spellings, doesn't really tell you they're teaching anything different. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, you know, you got to say, what, well, what differences do you see? Mm -hmm. I think the other thing is to remember that all of us in making judgments about truth have to have standards. Mm. And the question is, am I the standard or is something outside of me the standard? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so often what happens in these academic circles is the academic says, well, this doesn't make sense to me. It can't be right. Well, what then is the ultimate standard? That academic. Hmm. Um, and what Scripture teaches about all of us is that we are sinners and we have a lack of knowledge. We are ignorant in many ways. Um, but what it teaches about itself is that it is God's Word and it's truthful. And so it depends on where your starting point is. Mm -hmm. If I am to judge over top of Scripture, anything that doesn't make sense to me, I will say is wrong. Mm -hmm. But if it's to be the judge over top of me, then I have to humbly sit below it and say, even though I do not fully understand, I mm -hmm. accept it as true. Mm -hmm. That's good. So it seems that if a someone goes into an academic setting that does not have a Christian worldview and they're attacking the, the trustworthiness of scripture. But that person came out of a church and they say, but my, my pastor kept telling me that my Bible was inerrant. They can be rocked by somebody saying there's lots of copies and there's errors. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I think, all of us can be rocked at some stage because we're trying to judge these things and make sense out of all of it. Yeah. Um, and so they, there's no question. And I, and I don't know that all places will attack them, but I have had students um, myself who have transferred in from universities 
And after I give introductory lectures on trustworthiness of Scripture and different debates that arise, and I say, now this is what they will be taught often. I've had my students who transferred in go, that, that's exactly what I was taught. <laughs> and they go, no one ever told me this other side. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, speaking of uh, your source and, and the Supreme Judge, who decided which books went in the Bible? This is what the topic of can, biblical canon, canonicity. I mean, um, who decided what books were in there? This is an area dear to your heart. Yes, it is. Um, well, first of all, we don't know everybody involved with everything. <laughs> It'd be nice if we had exhaustive history, but we don't. But it's important to start with how you approach this. Are the books of the Bible there because somebody came along and put their stamp of approval on them, and therefore they are the Bible? Or are the books of the Bible already the Word of God and need to be recognized as that? And someone comes along and says, yeah. <laughs> All right. And when you actually read the documents of the early church in terms of New Testament canon, um, they talk, this is post-time in the New Testament, they talk about the churches recognizing these things. Mm -hmm. This would be whether you look at the great early church historian named Eusebius or whether you look at the great theologian Athanasius. Uh, they both speak about uh, the books of the New Testament, and they talk about which books are recognized across the church. So we're not just talking about my own recognition. It's mm -hmm. talking about the church as a whole recognizing yeah, that is the Word of God. And you also have to set that in context time-wise. There's no photocopy machine. You know, there's no email. And so, you know, it, especially with some of the smaller books, mm -hmm. it took them longer to get distributed. And people go, yeah. But, you know, the major books are never debated. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, as far back as we can go post-New Testament, the four Gospels, Acts, mm. the letters of Paul, that there's just... No one questions that. Mm -hmm. It's just accepted. So Athanasius in his Easter letter of, what was it, 367, mm -hmm. maybe? So he's not declaring what books are the New Testament. He's recognizing them. He's recognizing and recommending to his congregations. Who don't have email. That's yeah. right. He said, these are the books that are recognized across the church. And yeah. with someone like Athanasius, you have to realize, even though he's writing from Alexandria and that area in Egypt... He is one of those individuals that literally knew everybody mm. in the church. I mean, everybody who was significant, he would have known. Mm. And it's his 39th letter announcing the date for Easter that year. And, you know, he has been in connection with all the major leaders across that whole of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And so when he says this is recognized in all the churches, it's not in my local little diocese or whatever, it's across the whole Mediterranean. Wow. Yeah. So canon means measure, uh, standards. And, and so was it a fair question to say, what standards were they looking to recognize? Did they, did they know that? Yeah, I think they, they had some criterion that they used. Well, first of all, the major criterion is what does the book say about itself? Now, that's a very mm. important criteria, mm. because if you had a book that came along and said, well, this is a good book, but I don't know if I got it all right, it would be hard for someone to come along and say, well, it's inerrant, because 
it itself wouldn't claim that. Yes. And I think yes. it's very important to see what the books claim about themselves. And, um, you know, it's not that every book in the New Testament has to say, uh, God told me to write this down. But, you know, when Paul talks about his teaching, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, he says explicitly, you received our words not as the words of men, but as they really are the word of God. Well, Paul can identify his teaching that way. And, mm. you know, one of the criteria that the church frequently used in just recognizing was, does this have some strong connection to an individual apostle or the apostolic community right back at the very beginning? Yeah, and so dating becomes really important for the letters, and it feels like that's another tactic that some in academia will use to try to undermine the trustworthiness of Scripture is propose a dating of a gospel two centuries or however many centuries later that takes it away from the apostolic community. Is that so? That so when somebody opens a study Bible they have and there's so much written about the date and the time of writing, why is that important? Well, if I were to come along now and say. I just found a book by Mark Twain that nobody else has ever heard of, has ever seen, <laughs> has never been mentioned. I would hope that people might say, why do you think so? Now, would it be impossible? No. I mean, maybe there was a trunk that Mark Twain, you know, buried away and his great, great, great granddaughter had or something. I don't yeah. know. But the likelihood just decreases drastically the longer the time period. Yeah. And so we want to, you know, to the best of our ability, look at when do we have, for example, the earliest um, quotations outside the books of those books? Mm -hmm. um, and what we what do we say about those quotations? Did the person recognize it was from this one? Uh, for, for example, one of the books that some scholars uh, in the modern academic world, say, is non-Pauline, but it says it's by Paul in the New Testament, is 2 Thessalonians. Hmm. Now, 2 Thessalonians is quoted by a guy named Polycarp, and we can date his letter pretty well, though people have disputed that date to in order to buy, push it back, to about the year 110 to 115 because of what he's writing about the letter as a whole. And he quotes it as from Paul. Oh. All right. Now that's 115. You may say, well, that's a long time after the apostle died. And the answer is, yeah, it's probably 55, 60 years after the apostle died. But Polycarp, we also know, was raised in the church. He talks on his deathbed of, for 86 years, I have followed the Lord. Now he could be 95, I don't know, but he could just be 86. But either way, he's raised in the church. And the other thing people say, the scholars, the historians about Polycarp, is that Polycarp is the type of individual that never had an original thought in his mind in his <laughs> life. He just repeats what he has been taught. Well, when would he have been taught this? He's been a leader in the church already when he's writing this letter. Mm. He certainly would have been taught it by the time he was 20. Wow. Uh, and we can date his birth to approximately the year 70. Um, he probably knew the apostle John. Uh, himself. Uh, he doesn't say that, but 
one of the people who knew him says that he knew John. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the connection is much tighter with that quote than people tend to realize. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not debated in the early church that Paul wrote it. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't debated till about 1798 to 1800. Yeah. And that's when those discussions started arising. Um, and other letters are, they, they debate too. There are a few others. There's usually in New Testament studies and Pauline studies, uh, seven letters that pretty well everybody accepts as from Paul. Mm-hmm. And they use that to compare to the six letters that some people question. Yeah. And, um, that's a lot more slippery than people realize those mm-hmm. comparisons. There are differences. Uh, I wouldn't say contradictions, but there are differences. Uh, there are a different point in the history of the church. I mean, first and second Timothy and Titus seem to be after the book of Acts, mm-hmm. the way they're written. Well, mm-hmm. the church is at a different place after the book of Acts than it was when Paul started a bunch of those churches. Yeah, right, right. And so there is, there can be development of the way you write and and so on. And a lot of the discussions, and we can go in much more detail, but we don't need to, um, people should realize that those 13 letters of Paul were never disputed really before the late 1700s, early 1800s, when mm. a, a rationalistic kind of mindset mm-hmm. came along um, and uh, objected to them. Mm. That's wonderful. Um, this has been really helpful. Dan, thank you so much. I think anyone listening, why should I trust a 2,000-year-old book like the Bible can hear a resounding, you can trust uh, the Word of God is the Word of God. And you can think more clearly and thoughtfully about the copy you have in your hand, and you can rest. Um, at least that's what I am taking away from well, this. Well, I, I think that's, that's really important. And, you know, think about it in this way. If God was going to reveal himself Hmm. to a large period of history, what better way than to get it written down? Yeah. And that goes hand in hand with covenant. It goes hand in hand with the whole history of redemption. Yeah. And God, you know, initially the patriarchs don't have much, but once Moses starts in, you know, it's like now we have the word of God and all future things must be compared to that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I find that... Uh, as we introduce the Westminster Confession of Faith episodes, that the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us how God reveals himself before it tells us who God is. So it starts with Scripture mm-hmm. because that's the way to know who God is. And uh, and we can trust the Scripture that we have. So thank you so much for joining us on an episode of Pillar and Ground. It's an honor to have you with us here and in our life together here in this congregation. Thank thank you, you, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Pillar and Ground, and we hope you'll join us for more future episodes.